The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Luke. And we will be in Luke chapter 23 this morning. Luke 23, going back to the same place we were at last week. And uh, was that my mic doing that again? Okay, so if that continues to do that, I will switch to this one. Um, So... Well, that's our plan B. Hopefully it won't. But um, Luke 23 is where we'll be today. Uh, good singing today. Amen? Uh, good singing. I, I found myself down there. We were singing It Is Well. And uh, I was in the section where I had uh, Lana and Emily and Hannah and all that row back there. They were behind me. And I was like, that sounded really good. And then they went in this parts and they were doing that behind me. And I was like, I got these backup singers behind me. This sounds incredible. And then all of a sudden we did the key change and my voice cracked and I realized, no, uh, not so much, you know. But uh, um, we really are, none of us here to perform. Uh, none of us here are on the stage. None of us are here because of merit that we have, that we're better at this than some. So we've been brought in. We're, we're here at the grace of Christ. Uh, it's what Greg said earlier, that someone bore the wrath. Someone paid the price. And so we're thankful for that. Glad that you're here with us today. We're in the middle of a a series. Maybe it's when I moved to my right. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll give it one more shot and then we'll switch. Um, We're in this series, seven words. Um, Okay, that was it. Now this is going to be awkward for me to hold this mic and talk to you at the same time, but we'll we'll get through it together. We're in this series, seven words. And um, today we come back to, last week we looked at, at a particular passage, that first word from Jesus from the cross as he's hanging there, these seven last things that, that he said from the cross. And we, we come to this and, and we all realize that the words that people say in their last hours are pretty important things. And if you are the Son of God, the Lord of glory, wouldn't you think that in those last few hours that the things that you would say would be on purpose? And so here we're going to find that in these last seven words, uh, Jesus is communicating some very important truths to us. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus praying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Uh, This week we're going to look at Jesus here still on the cross and these thieves around him uh, hurling insults at him. And to one, he promises that today you will be with me in paradise. We come to this story, and and, um, it's more than a story. It's a true account in history. And we come to this, and we see in our passage today, before I read it, we see there are these two men that are hanging on either side of Jesus. They are similar in circumstance. They are similar in, in, in so many ways, yet they have opposite outcomes. Both of these men hanging on the cross, both of them were convicted of crimes. Both in this moment are being crucified, being nailed and hanged to a tree right beside Jesus. They're both just as close to Jesus. There's not one that's a little closer than the other. They're right there. They're, they're hearing the same things. They are seeing the same things. They both are suffering. They both are dying in this moment. Each of them needs forgiveness, yet one dies the same way that he lived hard, closed off, self-sufficient, unapologetic, unashamed, 
not needing help from anybody, refusing any help from anybody in that moment. But the other, the other begins to change. And the other, we'll see as we read through this passage, the other begins to be soft toward his own sinfulness. He confesses that sin, and he calls on Christ to forgive him, and he winds up going to paradise. How do you explain that? How do you you explain how both of these men, same place, two outcomes? How do you explain that? What would cause one man to change while the other stayed the same? Was there something in the one that the other didn't have? Was the one somehow better than the other? Well, the answer to all this I'm going to show you is it's not any of those. And some of you are here today, and, and you're believers, and you have witnessed, you've tried to share your faith with someone that you love, and you want them desperately to know the forgiveness and the hope that you know in Christ, and you've shared your faith with them over and over, only to have them reject you time and again. And you're frustrated, and you think, why? Why won't they just see the truth? Why can't they embrace this? Other times, you may have shared with someone, and almost instantly, they received it so easily. And today we're going to look at why does this happen? What's happening here that's going on behind the scenes? Let's look at this passage together. Luke chapter 23. I'm going to begin reading in verse 39. The Bible says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray before we look at this passage. God, this morning, I pray that you would give us clarity, God, as we look at this. This is your word. I pray, God, that we would read it and explain it and listen to it and sit under it, knowing that it is your very word. It is not only authoritative, but it is life-giving. So, God, I pray that in these next few minutes, God, that you would come and give life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have phrased these four points for you today in a way that's going to seem strange at first, but I take this language from uh, Arthur Pink, or A.W. Pink, who was a preacher, theologian, uh, has written commentaries, and he's written a book on on, on these last seven words, and he makes a statement in, when looking at this passage that just captivated me. And I'll read that statement for you later, but I, I want you to know where I'm going with this. So here's your first point. First point is this. Nails through their hands and feet stopped both men from pretending to be something they weren't. Let me say that again. Nails through their hands and feet stopped both men from pretending to be something they weren't. 
We, we see here in verse 39 this criminal, this first, who's railing at Jesus. Here in these last moments, railing at Jesus, seeing it all, and he's there not asking for help, not asking for mercy. In that moment, he's just railing at Jesus. And he says to Jesus, I thought you were the Christ. If you're the Christ, then save us and, and save us all. And it's, this is not here a a moment of confession. This is not faith coming through in this first criminal. Instead, this is sarcasm. He's, all he's doing is joining in with the crowd. He's watching the rest of the crowd and the scribes and the Pharisees and all the rest, and he's just joining in with them. Here's the man who's with Jesus in suffering, and in that moment has to still deflect that and, and make someone else attempt to suffer more than he is. This is a, not a good man. This is not an innocent man who's wrongly been convicted and here is, is held against his will and being murdered by the state wrongly. This is not the case at all. This is a bad man. Not in the Muhammad Ali type of way. He's not a bad man that way. He's a bad man to his core. And the reality is he's not the only one. Um, he has a past here of, of wickedness. That's why he's here on this cross And he's getting ready to die, so he obviously has no future of anything good. Here in this present, he's got wickedness on display as he yells at Jesus. And I would point out to you that he's not the only one. We have a tendency to come to this, and we look at this first criminal, and we like to point the finger at him and paint him out to be in some way worse than anyone else. But I will point out to you that just minutes before this, it was not only this criminal, but it was also the one who is about to receive paradise from Jesus that was also yelling insults at Jesus. Matthew 27 tells us that. Matthew 27 verse 44 says, And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And say, well, what's your point? My point is this, that nails to their hands and feet stopped them from pretending to be something they weren't. Their true character came out. They were bad men to the core, not one above the other. They both were equally bad in their nature. They're sinners by nature. It's who they are. And it comes out here in this moment of suffering. And isn't that true for us? We can all say, we can all, you know, most of the time sort of control our, our badness. We can control our behavior sometimes, you know. Most of the time we can be fairly good. But let us lose some sleep. Like in the spring when we roll our clocks forward. And watch us, right? I mean, my wife and I did something stupid the other night. Friday night, this weekend, of all weekends, we stayed up till past 3 o'clock in the morning working on stuff at the house. And then it hit us Saturday. We have to set our clocks forward tonight. I treated my wife and my son and would have been my daughter, but she wasn't at the house, terribly. Why? Because in that moment of suffering, in that moment where I had lost sleep and I was out of my comfort zone, the true nature came out. And isn't that true? And it's true for all of us that in that moment it comes out and here on the cross, these two criminals, their nature displays itself. It comes out. Now I've been given a new nature in Christ, but sometimes that old flesh shows itself again. 
But here, they're displaying what is true of every person who's ever been put on the planet, that we are wicked to our core. Jeremiah says it this way in 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 8, chapter 7 says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 3 tells us that none are righteous, that there's not one who is righteous, that we've all fallen and fall short of the glory of God. This is true of all of us. This, I don't want you to think when you read this passage in Scripture that we've got one guy here who's really bad, but the other guy, he was not a bad guy after all. In, in the end, he shows himself he was a pretty good guy. It just took him a while to figure it out. Don't think for a minute that's the case. Both of these men are wicked to the core, and so are you without Christ. Nails to their hands and feet didn't, or it stopped them from pretending to be something they weren't. Secondly is this, nails through his, his hands and feet stopped the second thief from walking in any paths of righteousness or from doing any good deeds. This is what we see there in 41 where he says to the other criminal, we are receiving what we deserve. He says we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. And this is the, the understanding of so many in our culture in this day is that they look at from the outside at the church, they look at Christians, and they assume that there's a couple of things that must happen before uh, you can be saved. One of which people look in, and, and this is not always people looking in, this is sometimes people within looking around at others, they look in and they, they assume that before we can be saved that I have to, in the first place, clean my life up. I've got to get some things straightened out. I've got to take care of some morality here. And secondly, after I've been saved, then I've got to do a certain amount of things in order to stay saved. I've got to, I've got to produce a certain amount of works and, and, and I've got to keep this stuff up if I'm going to stay in grace of God. But what they demonstrate in that understanding is that they don't understand grace at all. This is an understanding that is wrong. In this moment, what moral standard, what, what moral standing is this criminal going to point to? And isn't he here on the cross being executed for his own crimes? He, in that moment, is he going to step back and say, hey, Jesus, you know, I know the guy over here, he's a bad guy, but look, I, I, just, I, I know I'm here next to you, but I have been pretty good a lot of my life. I've been an upstanding citizen, to which anyone would have said, then why are you on the cross? What moral standing is he going to point to? What, what good works was he then going to take up? If we, if we use the logic of the culture that says either before I'm saved, I've got to have this morality, or that after I'm saved, I've got to produce a certain amount of works, what's he going to produce? In just a few minutes, he's going to be dead. He's going to have no opportunity to produce any good works, yet we see in the end of this passage him being saved. So if you're here today and you have this understanding that, that salvation is dependent on you somehow cleaning up your life or remaining a certain way or doing certain things, let this show you and let this teach you that it's not any or either of those things. In fact, the opposite is true. If, 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 if we 
lean on those and we look to those things, those things will not only not save us, but they will condemn us and send us to hell. This is what the Bible speaks of in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that Jesus, while we were still weak, at the right time died for us. That John 5, 3, when it says, that when he's there at this, this pool, and it says that in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, all of those miracles of Jesus as he walked through and he healed the lame and caused the blind to see and raised the dead to life, every one of those was not a, a picture of a unique individual in history. Every one of those was a picture of all of us and the desperate need of our souls. That we can't do anything to save ourselves, that we are thoroughly wicked in our nature. It's woven into our DNA, but not only that, but we can't do anything about it. We're beyond repair. And this is what, here on the cross, the second thief had to realize. I don't want you to walk away thinking, the second thief, he must have had some amount of good works that trumped the first thief. They were both desperately wicked, and they were both without moral standing or without any good works. He had, to, he had to realize this. Hanging there on this tree, he was facing his own eternity, and he looked back and knew that he was condemned, and he looked forward and knew he had no future, and his only place to turn in that moment was to, to this man hanging beside him. He realized he was bankrupt, and I would tell you today here as well, friend, if you're here and you are trusting in anything other than the finished work of Jesus on the cross you are looking backwards or looking forward to things that will dissolve. They will melt away and you will find yourself bankrupt in the end. Listen to how Arthur Pink says it. He, he talks about that, that these nails to their hands and their feet stopped these men from certain things. But listen to what he says. He says, those hands of yours, talking to all of us, not these on the cross, but to us, those hands of yours that are so ready for self-righteous acting and those feet of yours that are so swift to run into the way of legal obedience must be nailed to the cross. And friend, I would beg you and plead you today and invite you to turn away from what you're trusting in other than Christ. To nail those things to the cross and realize you're out of options. He is your only hope. Well, third is this. Nails through his hands and feet didn't stop the second thief from turning from his sin and trusting Christ. I'll say that one more time. Nails through his hands and feet didn't stop the second thief from turning from his sin and trusting Christ. I've already said in that moment, what other option did he have? He comes to the end of himself and realizes he has nothing to stand on. He's bankrupt. What other option does he have? But I would remind you that he's hanging on the other side of Jesus. There is a man who is in the same position he is. Similar background, hearing, seeing the same things, and that man doesn't take that option. That man goes to his death hardened and unapologetic and unashamed of his own sinfulness. So why, in this moment, does this criminal now begin to soften and turn? I want us, as, as I read this and as I, as I studied for this passage, I want you to walk through the text and I want us to, we don't have an opportunity to do this very often, 
But repentance, when repentance comes, we often see repentance simply come just in an instant where a person turns from sin, they turn and they forsake it and they trust Christ. We, we don't often see all that led up to that, but we have an opportunity in this passage today to step back and, if you will, to use a sports metaphor, to, to look at this almost as a slow-motion replay, that we can go under the hood and see what really happened. We're going to slow this down and look at what transpires here on the cross with this second criminal. First thing we see that, that's leading to repentance is he begins to be convicted. We use this, this word often in, in church circles. We talk about being convicted. And here we're not saying convicted of his crimes from an outside source, but we're saying that he begins somehow to realize his own part in this, that his conscience becomes sensitive to sin. I mean, look at what he says in 39 and 40. The, the, the one criminal is there railing at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And this second criminal says, do you not fear God? I mean, we're under the same condemnation. He says, don't don't you fear God? And for the first time ever, this criminal, probably in his life, first time ever, begins to see there's someone to answer to. And in this moment, when he's out of options, he he begins to, to somehow be made aware of the realization that there is a God And he looks at this other criminal, and while he was just joining in with him and railing and insulting Jesus, now something has changed. And he looks at this other criminal, his partner in crime, and he says, hey, don't don't you fear God? Are you not feeling the same thing I'm feeling? Aren't aren't you you afraid that we're going to have to answer for this? Aren't you afraid? We're under the same condemnation. Aren't you afraid of God? And somewhere along the way, he began to be convicted. That the Holy Spirit began to to work in him and this dead, dying man was beginning to live. This is the the first thing we see as we roll back this slow motion video. The second thing we see is is now he he goes from being convicted and aware that there's someone to answer to, but now he, he moves to confession. And now he, he turns and he says, hey, it's not just you over there on the cross. It's, it's me. I, I've got to answer for some things. He acknowledges his own guilt. In verse 41, he says, we, we indeed justly, for we are receiving due reward of our deeds. He's owning his own. Do you see that there? He's owning his own good. It's not like he's just saying, hey, there's a God out there that everybody's going to have to answer to one day. But now he's not just talking to the other guy or to someone else. But now he's saying, I deserve what I'm getting. He begins to confess. It's not just an awareness of right and wrong, but it is a personal ownership in it. It's confession in Scripture In coming to Christ, confession is when we come to the point where we say the same thing about our deeds that God says about them. Because up to that point, we can justify them, can't we? I mean, can't we do certain things and then we can come up with all sorts of excuses? Someone say, you know, that thing that you did was was really pretty wrong. Huh, but you should have seen what they did that that provoked me to do that, right? I mean, we we can justify it all day long. But when we finally reach the point of being convicted And we come to the point of confession. Confession is not putting up excuses and justification, but it is saying, that's right. 
I was indeed wrong. I am wrong. And I deserve whatever comes my way. And then we roll that tape a little bit forward. And we see here in this slow motion recount of leading to repentance. Third, after he's convicted and makes confession, now we see him convinced. His conviction and his confession are accompanied by faith to believe. 41b, he's just said, we're getting what we deserve, and it's just, my friend. But this man, this man's done nothing wrong. And he turns to Jesus and he says, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? Now, when I tell you that he becomes convinced of some things, you're going to say, well, what does he become convinced of? Well, let me show you at least three things that he becomes convinced of about Jesus in this moment. Why, just a minute ago, is he railing against him? Now he turns to this man in humility. Here's what he becomes convinced of. First, he becomes convinced that Jesus was innocent. That's obvious from what I just read. This man's done nothing wrong. And maybe it came as he was nailed there to the cross, hanging beside this man, and watched this man as he was violently mistreated. He watched this man pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Repeatedly, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He watched him as these guards mistreated him, and the crowd mocked and yelled at him. He watched as the the Pharisees and the scribes, they just sort of smugly laughed and enjoyed what they were seeing. And he watched Jesus repeatedly. He heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And somewhere along the way, he becomes convinced that this man's innocent. Look, I know criminals, but this is no criminal. I've been around criminals all my life, but this man, this man's not here because he's done anything wrong. We, we're here because we're getting what we deserve. Our deeds are wicked, but this man, he's innocent. He also becomes convinced that Jesus was truly a king. You say, where do you get that? Well, I get that from verse 42 when he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? We say, what's the big deal about that? Jesus is nailed to a cross. What what would convince this man? What What would make this man think that this man hanging next to him is on his way to a kingdom? What would make him think that this is a king? Other than as he's paraded through the streets following this man, he watches and he sees this crown be put on his head and have to be adjusted. It's no crown of royalty, but it's a crown of thorns. It's bringing blood, but he watches this. Why are they calling him king? And as they drop the cross into the hole and it hits with a thud, he watches as as they descend up to the top and nail a plaque above him that reads, this is the king of the Jews. And he looks and he, why why are they calling him a king? And somewhere along the way, against all odds, he becomes convinced that this man really is a king. And third, he becomes convinced of this that Jesus really could save. He turns to Jesus and he he casts himself on him and asks to be remembered. 
We know, though, that, that when, he, when he turns this way and asks to be remembered, he is here admitting that he believes there's something more here. And he turns and he calls on him to save him. He doesn't know when that will be, but he just says, maybe he can. And I wonder where that came from. Well, I would take you back to verse 35 where the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. And somewhere along the way, what was meant to be evil and wicked, he saved others, let him save himself, in the mind of this criminal became, he, he saved others. Maybe he can save me. He becomes convinced that Jesus is innocent, that he truly is a king, and somehow he has the power to save, which leads him to Fourth part of this slow motion replay of repentance, this call. He's convicted. He confesses his own sin. He's convinced of who Jesus is, and he calls on him. Verse 42 is nothing if it is not a cry of faith, a belief that Jesus could, in fact, save him. Why else would he ask the man next to him who was also nailed to a tree to remember him? This is a cry of faith. It's a calling on Christ to save. To which I would say to you now, as we head to this fourth point, this fourth and final point, what made him begin to change? What made him think that a reviled and a dying man was on his way to a kingdom? What made him think that a king would remember a man like him? I mean, if you think about it, this man in in just a few hours is going to be forgotten. This is a scourge to society, so much so that a government is having him put to death. He will be forgotten. What makes him think a king would remember him? What could possibly have made him think that Christ could and or would save him? Well, that leads to our fourth and final point, and it is this. Nails through his hands and feet didn't stop Jesus from saving him. Nails through his hands and feet didn't stop Jesus from saving him. Verse 43, Jesus turns to him after he's watched this, and, and he's seen this guy go from, from being convicted, confess, he's, he's convinced, and he finally calls, and Jesus turns and he says, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Here we see the only possible explanation. That here, this man, while he's coming to repent and believe in Christ, whereas the other man is not, when they are both desperately wicked in their nature and they have no good deeds, no righteous acts to to count on, why does this man come? There is no other explanation other than the divine, sovereign grace of God. God breathes in on this man and brings him to life and calls him to repent, gives him the grace for that and gives him the grace to believe. This is what we see here. This is what we we saw when we walked through the book of 1 Corinthians in the early days. I know it was a long time ago, but 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says, for the word of the cross to those who are perishing is folly, it's foolishness. 
When you share your faith with that person and they continue to laugh and reject and mock you for following this dead Christ, there is something in them that blocks that. It's the deadness of sin. It's foolishness to them. And you trying to convince them with, with smart tactics and trying to come around and backdoor them into the gospel will never work because they're dead. Ephesians 2 tells us they're dead in sins and trespasses. But listen, 1 Corinthians 1.18 goes on and says, but to us, but to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. In the life of this thief who's hanging here, when he sees the cross, it, the cross becomes the very power that it awakens him and en- enlivens him to be able to repent and trust Christ. And if you're here today and saved, you know this is the case. Even if you were saved in an early age, if you look back on it, you realize, why? Why should I? Why should I, of all people, have at some point been led to pray and trust Christ as my Savior? Why, why me? I mean, I was saved at eight years old. At eight years old, I was into fishing I was into matchbox cars and G.I. Joe and all that stuff. Why, at eight years old, did somehow, someway, Jesus become more important in a moment than all of those? Is it not that God in his sovereign grace has awakened me to the power of the cross? If you're here today, and, and, and maybe that's you, maybe, maybe yours is later in life. And you can really say, you can contrast it with the life that you were living and say, why? Why did I wake up to this? There's not one of us in here that can take any credit for that. God has so rigged it that only He would get the glory. He is the only one that can claim anything here. So, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. What's being said there is that the same sun that melts the butter also hardens the clay. That sometimes it comes across and it begins to melt a person. Other times, they become even harder and harder to it. So in the context of you, believer, going out and witnessing to family members and friends, and and when they just continually reject you, am I saying that you should stop? The answer is absolutely not. That you should continue to witness to them and share your faith and call them to repent and believe. Because you and I, we don't know who those are who will believe. We don't know the second thieves. We don't know who they are. We know that every single one of us at our heart are thieves. We know that in the end, our good deeds, whatever the world says those are, will not stand up. So none of us know. None of us know who those second thieves are. We don't know who God's elect are, but we do know this, that God saves sinners. That God saves sinners. And this in itself is glorious. It is miraculous. God still saves sinners. And if we don't know the elect, but God still saves sinners, then we should share the gospel with everyone who will ever believe. God's not going to save all sinners, but there's certainly not one sinner out there anywhere that he couldn't save. There's not one of us who's bad enough or or more wicked than his grace because his grace plums beyond the depths of any and all sins. For the one who turns and trusts and believes. 
This thief ought to demonstrate that. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts this. Charles Spurgeon had an imagination and he could illustrate what's going on in beautiful ways. We miss this in our language today, but Charles Spurgeon says, as he's imagining this entrance into heaven, when Jesus turns to him and says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He's imagining, watching in heaven as they enter. Who is this who enters the pearly gates at the same moment as the king of glory? Who is this favored companion of the Redeemer? Is this some honored martyr? Is it a faithful apostle? Is it it a patriarch like Abraham or a prince like David? No. It is none of these. Look. Behold Sovereign grace. Do you you realize that the first person to enter into paradise with the crucified Savior and Redeemer is this thief? And you're sitting here today saying, but you don't know what I've done. To which I would say, you don't know my God. You don't know the depths of My depravity that he has overcome or the depravity of all these people in here. Why are you hiding behind yours in pride claiming that yours is worse than all of ours instead of giving God glory and saying that his grace and his cross, his atonement is more sufficient than any of those. Jesus is always ready. Hear me. He is always ready to receive the sinner who will call on him. He will turn none of them away. John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So friend, I want to ask you today as I just close this sermon. What about you? Are you going to live the rest of your life and go to your death one day like that first thief? Are you going to refuse to humble yourself? Or will you be like that second thief and turn and call on him against all odds, against everything culture says about him? Will you turn? I invite you today on the authority of the Word of God and the Gospel and the sovereign grace of God, I invite you today to turn and believe. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of grace. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would display for us one more time that grace. God, you don't owe that to us, but God... I know from what I read and I am convinced that when sinners are saved, when they turn from their sin and trust you, that ultimately, yes, it's for their good, but ultimately, God, you are glorified in that. So, God, I'm asking you today to glorify yourself by saving sinners in this place. God, do this so that you might be praised. For your name's sake, amen.
we want to give you an opportunity to, to respond. I've called you to it. I've asked you to turn from your sin and trust Christ today. And if, if this is you, then there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing that you must do. There is no, there is no coming down to the front or, or there's no talking to a certain people. There's no checking any boxes. There's no going through any water. There's none of that that will ever save you. If you, if you still think that, then you miss the entire sermon. But if today... By God's sovereign grace, you begin to sense that you are being convicted, that you are aware of your own guilt, that you are convinced more than ever that maybe you don't know all of who he is, but you know he's more than you thought he was. And today you want to, by faith, call on him to save you from your sin then today I'd invite you to do that. And if I can help you with that, if I can talk with you, if I can answer any questions, then I'll be seated right down here on the front. I'd love to talk with you. But I'm going to ask you to turn and believe. If you're here today and, and there is somebody that you have just labored for and you've loved and you've wanted them to come to faith in Christ, you want them to know him and to know the joy and forgiveness, but they just seem to keep rejecting, then I would tell you today, keep sharing, but also storm the throne of God and pray for them. Pray that God in his grace and his mercy, while he is absolutely right in all things that he does, that he might be merciful to them. And maybe you want to use this time to to pray. Maybe some of you are here today and, and God's leading you to join this church. We invite you to come and love to receive you. Whatever it is that the Lord leads you to do today, I'm going to ask you to, to just humble yourself and follow him. Be obedient as you worship him. Let's, let's worship him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.